We have been uh, in a series. Is that projector on? Yes, it is on. We've been in a series, Living Like Mary, and today I want to talk about... Today, am I on? No, I'm off again. Today I want to talk about uh, true worship uh, this morning, true worship. Again, if, if I went around the congregation and asked every single one of you, what does the word worship mean? We would probably get a lot of different responses. True worship... If you were to engage someone in in a conversation of religion, a complete stranger about church, one of the most common questions, if you think about it, if you're wanting to start a conversation, one of the most common questions that you would ask someone is, where do you go to church, right? That kind of is like an icebreaker type question. Where do you go to church? Where someone goes to church is an important question, Because many people put more stock in where they worship than anything else. A few weeks ago, well, maybe a few months ago now, I don't know. uh, The last couple of times that we met, I had given you some information on some famous churches, if you remember that. There's a few more that I want to look at today as far as incredible edifices. That is, in front of you, is the St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. It was built in 1858. It seats over 2,000 people. Some of the altars in that church were designed by Tiffany and Company. Can you imagine how great those altars look? This next church is the Washington Cathedral, National Cathedral. It's an Episcopal church in Washington, D.C. It's the sixth largest church in the world, second largest in the United States. Construction began on this in 1907 when President Theodore Roosevelt was in office, and the church was completed in 1983, excuse me, in 1990, 83 years later when President H.W. Bush, 41, was in office. All the donations has been private donations. No government funds is designed by Congress as the National House of Prayer. The pulpit, I want you to look at the, the, at the pulpit in this church. That's the pulpit. Um, that is made out of stone that came directly from the Canterbury Cathedral in England. Deacons, just want to let you know, in next year's budget, I'm going to be asking for funds to be... <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Here's another incredible edifice that many of you will notice as soon as you see it. How many of you know what that is, just by the raising of your hand? So you okay. That is the Crystal Cathedral, I believe out in California, Protestant church founded by Robert Schuller. Seats over 2,700 people. The sanctuary, as you can maybe see there, the sanctuary has over 10,000 rectangular panes of glass. Deacons, how would you like to clean those things every week? And just changing religions here, here's another famous site where people love to worship. How do you know where that is? Some of you know what that is? That's Mecca. That is Mecca. It's a city in Saudi Arabia where Muhammad began the religion of, of, of Islam. Today, 1.7 million Muslims live there. And if you see that black box, that is in the middle of Mecca, and that's called the Kaaba. The Kaaba is considered the center of Mecca, and it's the direction where all prayers around the world are to be centered and directed. 
You've heard many Muslims or Muslims will pray every day or several times a day facing Mecca. And that's where they are directing their prayers is that black box right there. It's considered to be the holiest site in all the world for Muslims. These places of worship are popular because many people want to go to a place where they think they can find God, right? I mean, if there's any place in the world that you're going to be able to find God, surely he's going to be in these incredible buildings. These buildings that were meant to bring worship and glory to God or their God. However, this entire conversation is an opportunity for us to talk about worship. Worship. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Stephanie, it's going to happen again. I've been off for a week or two, and my voice is already feeling it. So, if you could help me out again, please. A little bit of portions of this passage that I will put up on the screen, but we're going to read the majority of it just from our Bibles this morning. Uh, This story involves the Samaritans, a very popular story, many of you know. Now, the Samaritans, most of you have heard and you know that the Samaritans and the Jews did not and do not get along. There's still a little pocket of Samaritans to this day, believe it or not. But back in the Old Testament and the New Testament days, uh, the the Jews and the Samaritans, uh, they hate each other. But believe it or not, uh, Samaritans claim to be Jewish. uh, Direct descendants of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. King Omri, the seventh king of Israel who came to power in 885 BC, he purchased a hill and purchased a hill and built a city on it called Samaria. Today this hill, and here's an actual picture of the hill, that's the hill. Today this hill is called Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim. To the Samaritans, this mountain that you see before you is considered sacred because they believe that it was the site that Yahweh chose to build his holy temple on. Thus, the Samaritans worshipped and worshipped God on this mountain. One of the things that fascinates me the most, uh, Louise Worsham's study on Wednesday um, that the world may know takes us to these holy lands. And there's a video in Ray Vanderland, and he takes us to these sites. And it just amazes me that all these stories that we've heard about all of our lives in the Bible, and there's the actual spot. And it's just really surreal for me. I really get a kick out of that. And, and when I see that, that is the place that Jesus was in that area when he talked to the Samaritan woman. The Jews, however, believe their most holy site for God's temple is to be in Jerusalem. The Jews hate the Samaritans because they view them as a group of people whose history is steeped in blatant idol worship. Down through the years, the Samaritans adopted pagan practices into their religion and it became corrupted. And the Jews did not like that. Because of that, the Jews separated themselves from the Samaritans. They began shunning them treating them like illegitimate children, so to speak, cutting them off from any lineage or heritage 
of Jewish descent. Now, how do you think this made relationships be, or the relations between the two people? Very difficult. A lot of hatred, a lot of animosity. The two don't like each other very much. But I want you to read in John chapter 4, starting with verse 5, going through verse 26. It's a little background on the Samaritans. And you can see why when Jesus comes a, a Jew, why that could have been a very contentious relationship. Here we go, verse 5. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well was deep. Where then did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What an incredible moment. What an incredible moment. I'm reminded of when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. And they said, we're looking for Jesus. 
And he said, I am here. I am him. And when he said, I am, the power that exuded from his words knocked the soldiers down. And I believe that when Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Man, that must have been a powerful moment. (laughs) Must have been a powerful moment. But I want to focus on a couple of verses here, verses 20 through 24. Let me read them again. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, she said, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Here again we have someone putting importance and an exclamation mark on where one worships. And what does Jesus do? He did what he has done so many times before. He shattered traditional thinking and brought about a revolutionary change. What he was getting ready to say to her would change everything. You see, it was a change that he was ushering into existence. A change that had to take place. A change that would challenge everything this woman knew was true. Let me just go on a little bit of a side note here. If Jesus walked into our churches today, how many things do you think he would change and do away with? That's kind of an awkward silence, isn't it? I would contend to you today that most of what we do today in church is found nowhere in the Bible. You realize that? Think about that. Our traditions, our traditional mindsets, where we meet, how we meet, what we do when we meet is really found nowhere in the Bible. Sometimes, church, we need to ask the questions, quote, why are we doing it this way? Does what we do make sense? Don't worry, I'm not getting ready to throw some bomb on you that I'm going to change some big thing. Why are we doing it this way? What that we do makes sense. Does it make sense? Is it being effective? Should we continue it or should we do it, do away with it? You see, all healthy churches need to seriously ask these questions on a regular basis. Hmm. First, we must make sure that what we are doing, hear me on this. First, we must make sure that what we are doing lines up with God's word. Secondly, if what we are doing is not effective, we need to be willing to do what Jesus just did. Change or maybe even do away with those traditions in order for a better way. Say amen or ouch. I'm just simply saying that we cannot hold on to any traditional mindset if it is not effective and if it is not pleasing to God. Back to the story. 
What Jesus said not only could have had him killed in that culture, it could really have him killed in today's culture. What he said then, he's still saying today. He said, look, Samaritans, as much as you love this mountain, it's no longer about you. In other words, he's saying, Jews, as much as you love Jerusalem and your beloved temple, Muslims, as much as you adore and idolize Mecca, Catholics, as much as you cherish the buildings like the Vatican, St. Patrick and St. Paul's Cathedral, Protestants, that's us. As much as you love your buildings like the Crystal Cathedral, as much as you love all of these religious sites, Jesus is saying it's no longer about where you worship, but who and how you worship. Ask yourself, are you more concerned about where you come to worship or who and how you worship? Bars Mill, God is not nearly as concerned about where we worship as he is who and how we live out our worship. He is not nearly as concerned about this building as he is and what takes place in this building. Yes, we can be thankful. We've alluded to it already. And I have to tell you, whenever I, I first came here and we had an installation service, we had, we had people come up from the church that I had left in Columbus. And they walked in these doors and they were just amazed with the beauty of the building and just the um, way that it was presented. And we can be humbly proud with what God has given us. We need to be thankful for such a beautiful place as we come together to worship corporately. And yes, we need to be good stewards of what he has given us. But hear me out on this. May we never allow the building to become more important than our mission of building God's kingdom. What God wants to know is are we using this building to glorify him? What are we doing inside? What are we doing outside of these walls to fulfill the Great Commission? For you see, nothing, and I mean nothing, is more important than that, the Great Commission. Jim Lyon, former pastor of the Madison Park Church of God in Anderson, who is now the new general director of the Church of God, he had a theme that he wanted to uh, communicate as a pastor, and now he has brought that theme into the church of God. And the theme is this. He has said that Jesus is the subject. That's it. Simple. Jesus is the subject. And if you look at verses 25 through 26, let's look at that real quick. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In essence, Jesus is saying the same thing. He's telling everyone who will listen, I am now the subject. It's not a matter of worshiping on this Mount Gerizim. It's not a matter of worshiping within Jerusalem. It's now about me. I am now to be the focus of your worship and not where. No longer will you, 
Now hear me out on this. No longer will you focus on where to worship or man-made rituals or man-made creeds or dogmas. It makes absolutely no difference if you go to classes to become a member of some church or if you go through confirmation classes or if your name is listed on some church membership roster. None of that matters if you have not repented and accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it's not important where you worship if you're not living and worshiping Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it doesn't. You can go wherever you want to go. I mean, God will lead you to where he wants you. But it must first start with spirit and truth. It has to start there. Go to a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and nothing else. You see, Jesus was ushering in a time when those who truly sought him could find him anywhere. Back to the Samaritans. Jesus indicated that the Samaritans worshipped in ignorance. If you look at the word there. They adhered to the Pentateuch, as did the Jews, the first five books of the Bible. However, the Samaritans rejected the rest of the Old Testament. In turn, they rejected all the great messages of the prophets and all the wonderful truths ordained in the Psalms. This rejection left them barren of the truth, to which they then developed their own truncated religion. One that accepted foreign gods and idol worship, but at the same time, they claimed to be descendants of the Most High God. They mixed religions and thus created their own false religion, their own false worship. Church, if you and I are not careful, we too can fall into a false system where our, now hear me on this, where our uninspired habits and routines of just going through the motions will create mindsets that will change our true worship into false worship. I'm going to read that again. If we're not careful, we can fall into a false system where our uninspired habits and routines of just going through the motions will create mindsets that will change our true worship into false worship. There's a song that we're going to do at the end of the service. I think just really um, encapsulates everything that I'm trying to say. And, and the author of it is Matt Redman. He's also the one who wrote 10,000 Reasons that we just sang. And Matt Redman, he wrote a book that I'm currently going through. And um, he talks about, he, uh, I don't know if he still does, but a number of years ago he led worship. Um, he was the lead worshiper, uh, worship pastor at a, at a church. It may have been over in England, I'm not sure. But he said one, one morning he came into uh, to church and, and he walked into the sanctuary and every instrument was off the stage. It was gone. The keyboard, the piano, the drums, the bass, the guitar, whatever instruments they had, it was gone. He had no idea what was going on. And he was pretty upset because he was the, uh, the music pastor and no one had run this by him. And uh, just who do they think they are? What's going on here? And he talked to the pastor and the pastor said, I did that. And he said, why have you done that? He says, because I fear that we are relying too much on instruments 
to worship God. Sometimes we want to create a worship experience by the instruments or by how we... See what I'm saying? And, and he said, I want to get rid of that. He said, I want to get us back to the heart of worship. You know that song, The Heart of Worship. And Matt Redmond said, for the next several weeks and several months, they came together and they just sang, I call it acapoco, uh, they sang acapella. And he said, but what it did, the, 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 the no instruments made them focus again on the word. Made them focus again on what they were really there to do to begin with. Then eventually they reintroduced the instruments back into worship. See, if we're not careful, we can slip into old habits or mindsets that's dangerous that can affect our worship. Not just on Sunday mornings, but in our life as well. We can also have what's called selective worship. Thousands, if not millions of people fall prey to this. Keep in mind that worship is not just what we do on Sundays. Worship is our lifestyle before God. But like the Samaritans, many pick and choose what they like about God and they omit the unwanted parts. Remember, you worship God whenever you do anything that pleases the heart of God. And I should say that you're worshiping God more when you're not here than when you are here. How you live your life. The things that you do, the things that you say, the things that you give priority to in your life. How are you worshiping God in your life outside of these walls? Many people want to hear all about the kind, loving, all-accepting God, but you begin talking about those passages where we are to repent and turn away from sin. Or if Jesus calls us to live lives of sacrifice, we've talked about that recently. Or the Holy Spirit tells us not to love the world nor the things of the world or its sinful ways. We are to consecrate and sanctify our lives in order not to allow sin in our life. When you begin talking about those things, well then many begin to have a selective worship. Say, well, you're too hard. It's not for me. But church... The things that I just talked about, these are the things that will take, it will take to worship God in spirit and in truth. We don't worship God just because we come here on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. That's not worship at all. We worship God when we give him our spirits. We give him our, our hearts. And when we come together corporately, I could feel there was a little bit of buzz. I could feel that you were ready to worship corporately. That's a good thing. Folks, Jesus is saying, in essence, it's either all or nothing. It's either all of me or it's none of me. You accept all of who Jesus is and what his holy word says, or you worship your own false made-up God. In verse 24, Jesus told us that God is spirit. Now, if we stop here for just a second, this opens up a whole new world to us. If God is spirit, then he cannot be contained or confined to things or places, right? Cannot be contained. And dare I say that God is not necessarily found in St. Patrick's Cathedral or the Washington National Cathedral or the Crystal Cathedral. He's not found in Mecca. He's not found in Jerusalem. And, and aren't you glad 
Because when you really need God, aren't you glad that you don't have to drive out to 4677 State Route 93 in Sugar Creek, Ohio to find God? We can experience him wherever we are at because through Jesus' shed blood, the time has come. Jesus said the time is coming and now is. The time has come when we can worship him in our spirits and in truth. And the truth is of God's word. Think about it. Don't answer me. This is rhetorical, but think about it. Is God in this sanctuary when we're not here? I asked that question to my family this week, and they had to think about it. Well, to say that God's not here almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? But really, it's kind of like saying if no one's around and a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound, right? (laughs) I would contend that when we are not here, God is not necessarily here. Because this is just a building of drywall and carpet and wood and shingles. and But rather, this place comes alive with the powerful presence of God when his true worshipers fill this place with hearts and lives that are surrendered unto him. That's when God is here. Then and only then can we give him our worship and praise. Listen, there are many today who are looking for the Jewish temple to be rebuilt so that the Jewish ritual of animal sacrifice can be started again. But Jesus is indicating to us in this passage that animal sacrifice or nothing done by human hands is is any longer adequate. It's no longer sufficient. The only gifts that please the heart of God are lives surrendered unto God. I don't know where you're at. You don't know where I'm at. But God is calling all of us to live lives of surrender. That's when we truly begin to worship him. One more passage and then I'm going to close. Isaiah chapter 1. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 1. It will be on the screen, but I still like to hear the pages turn. Don't ever, or some of you have it on your phone, just let me see your thumb just kind of flipping through the different things that you're doing there. Isaiah chapter 1. Again, you worship God not by coming to church on Sunday at 7 o'clock or maybe, you know, Wednesday at 7 o'clock. You worship God in spirit and truth. You worship whenever you're giving him your entire life. And then when we come together corporately, that's just a powerful experience. Isaiah chapter 1. We see Judah having sinned by becoming an immoral and idolatrous nation. This seems to be the pattern of Israel through the Old Testament. They have sinned. However, by their actions, the Israelites looked and acted the part. Get that? They looked and acted the part. They continued with their animal sacrifices and offerings, their yearly celebrations. They said and did all the right things, but their hearts were far from God. Listen to what God said to his people through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 11 through 15. Jesus, or God, said, What makes you think I want all of your sacrifices? 
says the Lord. I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all of your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. Wow. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wow. You see, their worship, their routines, their habits, their rituals, their uninspired motions became an abomination to God because they had sin in their life. God became disgusted with their attempts of worship. Their lives were not sold out for him. This morning, as we close, I'll just ask you to examine your heart and I examine my heart. Make sure that there is nothing in our lives that is hindering our worship to God. Hmm. You don't have to turn there, but I close with this passage, a familiar passage, Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. The psalmist said, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You want to be a true worshiper of God? This is the journey that we've been on now for the last several weeks, if not one or two months. You want to be a true worshiper of God? True worshipers worship God when we present our bodies as living sacrifices, living holy and pleasing lives before God. When we do not conform to the polluted patterns of this world, but when we allow the Holy Spirit to radically transform our minds. True worshipers worship God when they worship not like Martha. Remember that? When we get all bent out of shape and worried about the things that in the end will not matter. But when we worship like Mary, choosing the better things in life. Pouring out our extravagant adoration and praise to God. Filling the rooms of our lives with a sweet aroma unto God. And we become true worshipers. When we're not nearly as concerned about where we worship but who we worship and how we worship. Would you bow your heads, please? Singers, staff, do you all want to come up? You just be still for a moment. Be still before the Lord.
Father God. Lord, maybe we need to get rid of all of our instruments and no mics or no anything. And God, maybe we all need to ask ourselves, what is it that we need to get rid of in our lives that's hindering our worship before you? Uh, for some, it might be a schedule. For some, it might be a calendar. <laughs> it might be priorities. For some, it might be money. For some, it might be some vice or some chain or bondage. For some, it might be just a career, a busy schedule. For some, it might be TV. God, what is it that is holding our true worship back? Lord, this morning, we do not want you to look upon us as you looked upon those in the days of Isaiah. God, help us to worship you. Help us to realize that it's not about where but it's about who and it's about how we worship. Lord, as we sing this song, may it be a time when we just kind of realign our priorities. Lord, if there's anyone here that uh, Lord doesn't know you, Lord, this can be the start of a brand new life, a brand new day, a wonderful life. They'll just give you their hearts and their lives. Father, speak to us this morning as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?